0: hey everybody welcome back to another episode of happy hour history i wanted to talk today about some things that happened at the american historical association annual conference i had mentioned it before because i presented there um this time it was in new orleans which is my favorite american city besides you know obviously well no i mean i'm from san diego but like You know how you take things for granted when you're from there? So to me, it's like, eh, like I don't miss it unless I'm gone for like two weeks or more. Then I'm like, man, I can't wait to get back home. But New Orleans is definitely my favorite American city to visit, I'll say. And the conference this year was there. Every year they switch cities. The next one is going to be in Philadelphia in January. It's always within the first few days of January. And it usually ends either at the end of the first week or like by the eighth day of January every year. But the next one is going to be in Philadelphia. And then 2024 is in San Francisco. So the panel that I was on was called, I want to learn more about my history, innovative approaches to engaging and retaining borderlands, college history students. So the, one of the presenters was unable to come because of exposure to COVID. And so Jaleesa and I, Dr. Harris, excuse me, Dr. Jaleesa Harris, who's at ULM, which is University of Louisiana Louisiana at Monroe, we didn't too much talk about borderlands, But we did talk about sort of the border between the fields of history and English, which was great because a lot of the things that I've learned that have made me a better instructor when I first started teaching at the college level was using things that I learned from the literature and language department at the first community college that I was employed at. So our panel was talking about innovative ways that we retain students and sort of the things that we and themes that we use things and themes that we use in our classes to make them more dynamic. I think the reason why I really like going to these conferences so much is because it also gives me a chance to see new field work. So I get to sit in on other lectures and other sessions and hear and see what other scholars, especially those who are much more experienced than I, right, what they're talking about. And I always take notes because I always learn something that I can apply to my classes. So I'll sort of explain some of the panels that I sat in on. Now we had a lot less attendance obviously because we've been dealing with this variant and so many of the panelists were unable to come because of exposure or because of, you know, having to care for loved ones who were exposed to the variant but i would say it was still a really good turnout and despite not having as many panels, you could definitely tell a lot of the meeting rooms that were set up were empty. It was still nice to be able to retain and learn some things, right? And they also said the AHA was saying that they were going to move a lot of the sessions online for February. So that's great because I'll get to still get that information online next month. And I think now, since this isn't, this is my second conference that I've gone to with the AHA and that I've presented at. But I think I it was a little different this time, especially since it wasn't my first. And I really was thinking about how, as historians and as teachers, it's really interesting to see the difference between those of us who are more research-based and those of us who are more instructional-based. And what I mean by that is Myself and one of my colleagues from Grossmont College, Dr. Carlos Contreras, who's you know absolutely amazing, he and I were both in some of the panels, and we were taught, well, excuse me, we were in some of the sessions, and we were talking about how we as instructors, are there taking notes because we're going to use it to talk about within our classes. So, for example, if I'm sitting in on a panel about Latin American history, I am not trained in Latin American history. I took it. I have sort of like gotten more invested in the field because I do black studies, which covers a lot of Latin American studies, even though it's sort of like not as mainstream and not as talked about. But we were discussing how you know, us sitting in those panels and seeing all the new scholarship that's coming out from different historians around the world, because not everybody who presented is from the United States. It gives us the opportunity to bring in those resources and make them available to our students. So being able to say, this is a new book that's coming out, um, especially after we read it, right? But even changing some of the things that we've learned and you know gotten more information about to make it more robust and engaging for our students. However, for a lot of the historians, I noticed that we're more based in research. So they're at research institutions like universities and they do lecture, right? But it's not the same style as we do in the community college classroom. I noticed, and I was actually kind of disappointed that some of the people who you could tell are more based in their own research weren't in adjacent panels that had to do with their field. And I'll give an example. I'm not going to give names, right, obviously. But I noticed that I sat in on one panel that was talking about how segregation is built into modern cities, right? And I noticed that the panel right after that, which did talk about the... From about uh, Latin America and sort of how race has affected policy and the lived experience of especially Afro Latinos, that none of those people were in that next panel, right? I and Dr. Contreras had sort of confirmed for me that it seems like a lot of people who are more based in the research, you know, they'll come and they'll present their work, but they're not necessarily going in and watching other people's work. And the reason why I brought that up is because on one of the panels that was talking about how these different large Latin American cities have navigated poverty and inequalities the person who was talking about how that related to Mexico City was saying that it wasn't as rooted in racism because of the Mexican Revolution. And some of you know from if you've taken my class that I do talk about the Mexican Revolution and its importance in Latin America and obviously for the United States history as well. However, I was thinking, okay, this that's not true, right? Like, I I don't know that to be true. And of course I would never say that out loud. I'm not I would never ever do that. But I was thinking, okay, well that I mean we also have proof, like there are historical facts and figures that actively show that Afro-Mexicans used to live predominantly in Mexico City but were relocated to other places and were, because of discrimination, made to leave the area, which was way before the Mexican Revolution. So on one hand, you know, yes, for the time period that this person's talking about, it's not so much rooted in race, even though it's interesting still, because a lot of the people who are living in poverty are indigenous descended Mexicans, especially in that area. And then as you move out farther, like I said, you have more of the African-descended Mexicans. But it sort of just felt like, well, if that person had maybe been at the next panel that was talking about that, then it would have been like, I don't know, like, maybe it would have connected. And again, I'm thinking about it from like a holistic point of view, like with a 150, excuse me, not even 150, but much more time range as a total thing as a non-Latin Americanist. So I can understand if maybe my thought process about it is different than this scholars, because, you know, for their work, they're saying that it's not as race specific, but it still seemed to me like it, is even if not at first glance, right? And it was really interesting because in that same panel, they were talking about how that happened in Los Angeles with regard to indigenous people and you know Asian peoples who are moving, specifically Chinese, who are moving into Los Angeles. They talked about it in Sao Paulo. It was a really, really, really great panel. I think that one was my favorite panel. And I was asking one of the scholars who was talking about how this has played out in Los Angeles they were saying that in LA before it became this you know sprawling metropolis that we know it today and sort of when it transfers from spanish control to like american control um, you know, through manifest destiny and things like that, they were talking about how there used to be more so like like water was seen as like a public thing, so you had a lot more like public wells, public water um, avenues, and people didn't necessarily like well off people had it in their home, but most people had to go to a public square to do things like wash their clothes or to get well water to take back home. And they were and he was saying that. As this city grew bigger and how they, as they modernized and created, especially through Mulholland, he mentioned too, but as they created a private water system in the way that we use water today, like it's piped directly into our homes and we pay for that water access. He was saying how there are many Angelenos who, you know, people who lived in Los Angeles, across different racial groups also who didn't want it to stop being something that was made publicly accessible. Now we know obviously with today that it did become privatized fully, but it was really interesting to learn about how when it was publicly accessible and free, there were a lot more spaces of, com- of um, cultural gathering and community that was established in these areas. And if you're feeling like, oh, this is really cool, like I know, <laughs> it was really, really cool to talk about it and to talk about it with him after the panel I stayed and was asking some questions, because he was talking about it from the period of 1880 to 1920. And after the panel, I was, I went up to him and I was telling him, because um, actually some of the scholars he mentioned are at UCSD, and one of them was my grad pros- prospectus professor, And so, you know, I mentioned that and then we were talking about um, his research and I told him that when he was presenting about, you know, this water system in Los Angeles, it got me thinking about Wi-Fi and how I was telling him that when I've been in other countries, specifically in Latin America, that a lot of the Wi-Fi is only made accessible in public spaces. So like when I was in Cuba and specifically when I was in Havana, you had to buy a Wi-Fi card like you, you know, like we did back in the United States, you know, 20 years ago. You had to buy a Wi-Fi access card, but you could only use those access cards in public hotspots. And the public hotspots were traditionally, at least there, that I saw in parks. So there were some, I think I've mentioned this before when I talked about Cuba, but there were some that were sort of in like makeshift parks that were near the Malecon, which a lot of people go to, especially at the end of the day, just to hang out outside, um, especially because it's like a seawall. So it's right next to the water. Um, But also in the city center, you could only access the Wi-Fi unless you were, again, staying in like an American hotel. You had to go to the park to use it because that's where they have their routers or whatever they are that you can get the signal. And I was telling him that I also noticed that when I was in Grenada, Nicaragua that the people who, especially students, were using Wi-Fi in the public park because that's where they could get a signal. And it was actually free there. And they did that because it helped the students study, obviously, because they can have access to Wi-Fi. But it reminded me of that because I was telling him that sort of like these water areas that he was talking about where people could gather and really had a lot of time to build community, I felt like Moving Wi-Fi outside of the public space and especially in the United States here, having it more inside changes our interactions with each other. I mean, most of us would probably spend a lot less time online if we had to go to a public space, but we would also be able to meet other people in those public spaces, right? And of course, you'd have people who would be talking with each other about concepts or ideas, meeting people who are from other countries. And I was telling him too that, you know, when we would be outside, people would come up and talk to us in both countries. And we, of course, we would converse with them, but it was sort of a change of pace from being in the US or most of the time you can you know, you can have access to Wi Fi pretty much anywhere or a Wi Fi or an, an internet signal, you know, through the four or five G and how Even when we're in public spaces, we aren't traditionally talking to each other in this country when we're on our phones, when we're online. Versus in these other countries that are quote-unquote developing, right? They have a much better developed sense of community and a much more developed idea about community spaces when it comes to access to the internet. And actually, I just found my notes. So the water spaces, the ditches that were used by residents were from the LA River and they were called zanjas in, you know, LA at the time. So that's Z A N J A S. And he was saying that the open ditches date back to Asia, but you also saw them in Jerusalem and Babylon, and they were first used in LA in 1781, and they were eventually put underground in the 1880s and then at that point they were used to irrigate plants and animals and to do things like you know firefighting because of LA and there's always been fires there. And then he said that they were removed in the late 1890s and Mulholland was big for that and the, um, because of the shift to privatized waterworks, right like having it brought right into your home. and the last Zanha disappeared in LA in 1904 so like i said it was really really cool to sit in that i really like that he also was talking about how in the 1880s with the anti-chinese sentiment in la how the la times ran an article called hell's half acre if you're interested in looking it up of course i'm going to tell you but it's dated april 14th 1882 and if you have access to ProQuest, you could find it but you could probably just google it because i think newspaper archives are now just available on google But LA Times ran that article and they were claiming that because one of the, um, like, I think like the area that they had denoted as Chinatown, it was blasted because they were saying that it was unclean, right? However, it was considered unclean because of the lack of accessibility to water and to what was seen as clean water, right? Quote unquote. But really, they weren't addressing the systemic issue is that they weren't putting access to public water in those areas because they didn't really want those people there in the first place. And that kind of relates, it definitely relates to how, you know, we have inequities to social services and public utilities or just utilities in general even today right like and i'm like off the cuff here but some of us have been seeing about how expensive these some of these rapid covid tests are and that the government has not made them free and easily accessible to the public citizens right like some people have to buy them which is ridiculous, because like you need to know your status if you you know so that you don't infect other people, right, but um like you'd think like, well, why would you have to pay for something like that, and more with utilities, how expensive it is for water and power usage, or even just to have access to the internet. I mean, internet access is very, very expensive, but you need it to be able to get information about what's going on in your local area or in the world. So it seems like it should be something ideally that would be considered a public good. And at least, I know people say, well, you can go to the public library, but yeah, it's a whole nother talk about (laughs) again, equity and accessibility to public libraries to be able to use the internet. And especially now with COVID and so many libraries being shut down for usage, again, it's an issue of accessibility for people who don't live in wealthier neighborhoods or who don't have access to a public university because I want all of you to know, again, that public colleges have all of the computers unlocked. You, as a non-UCSD or non-SDSU student, can walk into the library, sit at a computer, and use it. They are unlocked because it's a public school. So having access to all of those materials is, for, is free for the public. So that, you know, you can walk, you can't, like, check out books, but you can go in and read them and look at them. You can make copies of things you need. You can look at the microfilm if you want to have, like, images of any of the old newspapers. Like I just mentioned, you could, I'm sure they have it at UCSD. You could look up the LA Times archive from 1882 and read that same article I was just talking about. All that's accessible to you. And the computers in the libraries are accessible and open and unlocked for that reason. But if you don't have transportation or don't live near one of these schools, it will be difficult to get there. And we know that, um, especially for some schools, that are built in lower income areas, they make it very difficult for minorities to access the school period. And I'm thinking about USC in particular when it comes to where it's located at in LA and a lot of the people who've been talking about and have talked about forever how students are encouraged not to go past certain streets and even black students at, UC, at who go to USC have been profiled because they're assumed to not belong there. Right. USC is built in a very black part of L.A. And that's all. In, you know, I'm going to talk about that for another podcast. But I thought that this talk about the Zanhas and specifically about L.A. was like brilliant. I thought it was really, really cool. I also sat in a panel that was called Black. In early Latin American archives, like black. Um, I'm, it wasn't experience. I can't remember exactly what word it was, but just um the early Latin American archives and how blackness relates to that. So the panelists talked about violence in the archives, specifically with dealing with history of black people and how our violence is commonly categorized and how that can affect us as black scholars. And also me. And actually I was talking to that historian also after the panel, her name is Dr. Tamra Walker and she's at university of Toronto, but We were talking, her and I were talking about how, you know, we sometimes we and, you know, we as in her and I feel like, you know, are we desensitizing our students to black pain by showing them these archival things when it comes to the institution of slavery to the point that they're unable to like they're not. Relating or don't see the problem with the violence that's still done on black people today. So her and I had a really great conversation about that as two black women who teach in similar fields and sort of how we, as the descendants of these people, manage our classrooms in that way. But other panelists were talking about, see, Dr. Herman Bennett was talking about black life in New Spain, Dr. Mary Hicks was talking about the archive as a institution of state power and a symbol and a symbol to locate origins and beginnings which I thought was really really cool. We had Dr. Pablo Gomez was talking about the archives of early Latin America and sort of some of the crossover Um, in different countries. And then Dr. Chloe Ironton was discussing the high rates of manumission and talking about some of the things that were um, occurring in her research in South America. And she also mentioned things about like how enslaved people would secure their freedom and sort of how some of them saw if they got hurt working that they would claim that their freedom was considered, you know, justification, I'm sorry, was considered compensation. That's what I mean. Was considered compensation or even delayed compensation, right? If they were trying to sue for their freedom. So it was really, really good. I sat on another bull presentation the next day that the panel was titled Not Like Us, Blackness, Racism, and Slaveholding in the Hispanic Atlantic, but actually only one scholar was able to come. And this scholar was Jesus Sanjurjo, I'm not sure, S-A-N-J-U-R-J-O at Cardiff University, which I believe is in the United Kingdom. But he was talking about his research and also you know talking about the book that he had written about this but he was talking about how some people who were advocating for abolition in Cuba for example didn't want to end slavery because they thought it was a bad institution or because they believed in racial equality but they wanted to end it because they didn't want to bring in any more black bodies because they saw that the culture was being africanized and if you've had any of my classes you know that we've discussed this at UCSD we've discussed it at Grossmont you know when I taught at Southwestern we discussed it there but the when you have bodies who are there and again they're forced to do the cooking and the cleaning and the music and you know, everything, they bring with them their own culture and they heavily influence the culture of your space. So he was discussing how the Cuban and the Spanish in Cuba who had control of Cuba didn't necessarily want to end slavery because of any moral reason. A lot of them wanted to end it because they wanted to stop the Africanization of the populace and also of the culture, of the island. And that's something that is going to be, of course, relevant to other places. Like one the one of the other panels that I told you I sat in on was talking about, you know, when you go to certain places like in, in Mexico and when the, I think it was Dr. Bennett was saying how, you know, you'd hear, no hay negros aquí, which means, you know, we don't have black people here when he was doing his research, you know, especially, you know, over the last, few years and in the beginning of his career would hear that but it's like you evidently do like we know that you do right but why is it that so many countries try to say that they don't and I can say that when I was in Nicaragua I was on the Pacific side and I had asked about Afro Nicaraguans and the cultural tour that my husband and I went on the guide was saying oh no you know we didn't have black people here. And I was thinking like, okay, like I know you did, right? It's like, I have historical evidence, but it's just another example. And who knows, maybe they're on the Atlantic side of Nicaragua mostly, but the point is there are black people in Nicaragua who are from Nicaragua and who have been there for hundreds of years. Just like my family has been here in the U.S. for hundreds of years. But it's just this idea that so many Latin American countries say, well, we don't have black people, And it's like, yes, you do. Right. But if you don't see them in the media in any positive way in your home, in your hometown, at the store, et cetera, of then you, it's not in your consciousness. So it was really great. That one was also a great panel. And he did talk about some abolitionists, sorry, back to Cuba and um, Dr. Sanjoro. But he was talking about how there were some people who wanted to end slavery from a moral point of view, but how most of the people didn't. And he gave a lot of really great evidence um, that he's looked up archivally that show that. So a lot of quotes, and of course, as always, you know, diary entries again primary source documents, which are the best. So I guess I'll talk a little bit about my what I talked about. I actually recorded the whole lecture that I gave and for some reason when I went back to my phone it deleted it like and I was using an app that shan't be named because clearly it sucks but (laughs) um I recorded the whole thing so I could post it as a podcast episode so you could hear my lecture because you know I don't usually give myself credit but your girl did that like I did a really good job And I wanted you all to be able to hear it who couldn't be there, especially because it was not being recorded by the AHA. But if you're in class and remind me, I will take um, the time to do that for you, either in Zoom or live, if you're listening to this later, but just remind me that you'd like to see it and we'll do it. But I was talking about how I engage students with different primary source documents, secondary source documents, videos, archival things, you know, how I structure my Canvas course. And I gave a mini lecture on race in the Americas, which I know some of you, you know, That's a defining lecture because it really unpacks nationality, race, ethnicity, and the differences between those. And so the activity, I had handouts, of course, you know me. So the activity I did was I asked everyone to write down what they considered their race, ethnicity, and nationality to be, and I opened it up for people to share, and like two people shared what they wrote down, and we talked about how in Latin America, and even in the English-controlled Americas, and even today now in the United States, the way we quantify these things are kind of using old world ideologies, which are very problematic for a globalized modern society. I did have everyone do the same activity I have you all do in class where I give them the pictures of those four women with one clue. So I, each box either has the ancestral heritage or the nationality listed. And then they had to guess based on that person's looks what their race and ethnicity was. So that would I mean for those of you who've had my class in the last year and a half, you've done that activity but we did that and then we talked about what the answers would be and you know how again Latinx is used as a racial mark, but it's not if it's an ethnicity. So you have Asian, black, white, indigenous descended, Latinos. We talked about the castas, which are the castes that were ordered in New Spain, which is, you know, Latin America, the Western hemisphere. And how they order their society based on the quantification of race. But how even today when it comes to people who are in mainstream society, how sometimes they claim to be parts of other ethnicities or races because they're trying to either other themselves from another group, from a group to receive like preferential treatment or accolades, or they're trying to align themselves with the group that so that they can use like certain language and capitalize on that and I did relate it back to New Orleans also and the history of especially like white prostitutes claiming that they were octoroons so they could up their price and things like that for their time and I related it of course you know to blackfishing in the media but one of the things I did say was I did use the example of the young person i don't know what she does like what her real talent is but danny lay um and how you know she's claimed that well she's black you know well i'm dominican and it's like okay, well dominican is not a race it's a country it's a nationality (laughs) um and how when she got her results back it showed that she was like 17 percent African, I think. And I was telling the you know, the viewers of the panel that I was presenting to that most African Americans have at least that European DNA because we were most of us who are descendants of enslaved people in this country were at some point mixed in with other races of people. But we can't walk around claiming that we're white because we have twenty percent European DNA, right? Or 12 or 17 percent in DNA. We, we can't claim that we're white, yet we, we, as in the mainstream society, allow people who are white Latinx or white non-Latinx to claim blackness because of some random percentage, right? And what does that mean for our global society today? When we're not conscientious about how we assign race to people and allow them to co-opt parts of a culture for their own profit and gain when they're really not a part of that, right? Because they don't walk around living the experience of those people on a daily basis. So it was a good lecture. Um, you know, I look forward to giving it live again when we can come back to class. But that's what my discussion was about. So I wanted to talk about that so you'd have an idea of what I presented on. And if you download the His, uh, American Historical Association app, then we were presentation number 19 and we went on January 6th, if you wanted to look that up specifically. But other than that, it was really great. I got some really good books. They had a whole table of books that were all $5. I found a really good book by Carol Birkin that's called First Generations Women in Colonial America, which there was only one left. So I don't know how many the vendor brought, but I was really excited when I saw it and I bought it. And then I bought two books about the Tulsa riot in 1921. And I gave, I bought one book to give away to my friend's dad, who had let me read his book about it last year. So I know that's something he's really interested in. And then the other copy was for myself, so I can read it, which you know means that my dad will end up borrowing it at some point to read it as well. But I got to meet some other scholars. And especially now that I've been teaching longer, you know, a couple... Because the last time I went to the AHA was... Four years ago was in twenty eighteen, so I could definitely tell the difference in my self confidence when it came to like waiting after the panel and talking to some of the panelists in the be you know the first time I went, I was super intimidated to you know it was hard for me to even get the words out because some of these people, I've read their books. So it's kind of like I was fangirling slightly, like, oh my God, like, do you know who you are, right? Like, I use your book in my class that I teach. But this time it was a lot more, and I felt a lot more self-confident in waiting um, to talk to them and, you know, just sort of realizing that I that the work I do is still important and it's relevant, right? So I shouldn't be comparing myself in the field and not to say that I do that because I don't like compare myself to these people like, Oh, well, what I'm doing isn't anything important, but just you know, they've been in the field so much longer and sometimes for new historians and for new, Scholars, I'm sure in any field, it can feel intimidating when you're in front of somebody who you've read or studied or used their works in your class because you feel like they're these repositories of all this knowledge. And, like, you know, you haven't done, you know, you may feel like, and like I felt, like you haven't done anything in comparison to that. But I realized that, well, the work I'm doing is still important. And I felt a lot more comfortable talking with them about. The things that I learned during their presentation, the things I was thinking about as it relates to myself in the field when it comes to instruction and the things that I teach in the course and things like that, I felt much more confident. So I can definitely tell the difference in the last four years. (laughs) Um, But, and I want to say too that I actually met a grad student. I went into one of the panels and I When I walked in, you know, she had smiled and I smiled and then I kind of sat near and then we ended up talking and she was a grad student. I forget where, but I know she was really nervous about presenting and she was going to be in the undergraduate lightning round and she was saying how she was nervous to present the things she had been doing research on and I was telling her, because this was her first conference and I was telling her that I felt like since it was my second that everyone so far this last time and everyone the first time I went was always very supportive that people aren't trying to trip you up or you know they're not going to say rude things if your research counteracts theirs or if you're saying something that they don't find to be true like it's a very encouraging environment it's not one like I was mentioning before like when that one scholar had said something that I was kind of like um okay interesting take right but That's not the type of conference where somebody would feel comfortable saying that to the panel, right? Especially out loud. Now they might go up to them after and ask, okay, well, you know, I had thought about this when you said that. So, you know, what do you think of that or how does that relate to your work? That's a completely different way of engaging it and a much more respectful and equitable way of having a conversation with somebody who is more, because they're the expert in what they research. Just like I'm the expert in what I research, but There's that's the way to do it, right? Nobody would ever call you out publicly for something like that at one of those conferences. Versus, you know, Jalisa was telling me that at MLA, which I forgot what that stands for, but it's like the English, the big English field conference that she was saying that it's sort of known for being more um like less inclusive and you know, less friendly. And I was telling her that I felt like the AHA, one that we were at, was I've never seen anything that made me be like, oh, you know, that anyone was ever made to feel uncomfortable. So it was really great to get to meet all those people, to notice the change in myself and how I approach the panelists after and also just to meet other people in the field. You know, I was talking to just random people like that grad student in that one session or I complimented this sister who was in the um, exhibit hall and she was in, what was she in? I think she was in Nebraska. And we were talking about, I complimented her braids and then we started talking just about, you know, our experiences teaching during COVID and um, we followed each other on Twitter <laughs> and um so just things like that, like making organic connections. And I think that's the best thing about the conference. So I think I'm going to end the podcast there. Just, you know, I had a great time as always. I noticed that a lot of the historians, uh, especially on the first day, I got there Wednesday. So the day before the conference started. And I noticed when I was leaving my room, cause you know, I went up, put my stuff down in my room and like was going outside to find something to eat. Right. It's like, I noticed that there was a lot of people who had the lanyards on, which meant that they were like, they had like the red lanyard so I could tell they were part of the conference and they were just sitting in the hotel lobby or excuse me, sitting in like the hotel, kind of like the dining area sort of like right next to the lobby. It's all open. And I wanted to be like, you came all the way here and you're eating hotel food. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) But, um, it was great. Like I love New Orleans, and I, you know, of course, had to get my char grilled oysters. Had to get my ham dinner plate from Mother's Restaurant. I actually found an Irish cultural museum, which was free to go into, and I did some filming, and I posted that on my Instagram, which is Natalie History, N A T A L Y E History. If you want to see that, um, and yeah, I got some really great content, which you know, always, as always. Um so there's always something that I find that I learn in the city, but it was great to merge that with learning things at the conference. So I hope that you all have a great rest of your day or evening and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.